We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Morning, good morning. Welcome you to come on in to our service this morning. This is our adult Bible study during Sunday school hour for the kids. Welcome to you if you're online. Okay, we're going to continue with our study that we began last uh, Sunday morning, and that is titled Divine Judgment. I gave you uh, last time a couple of cautions, one against overreaction, one against making excuses, and then we considered um, some, well, one objection actually to, two objections to eternal punishment having to do with the extended time and the nature of uh, the punishment, and we used an illustration to try to help us understand that, the illustration having to do with the nature of the victim uh, of, the, of the crime, we could say, the nature of the victim of sin, and ultimately that is God. The, the uh, higher placed the victim, the more consequential the results uh, of the sin are. We uh, used the example of uh, using a baseball bat to smash a tomato plant, your neighbor's pet, your neighbor, uh, or uh, to, uh, and all of those sins, of course, are against God. And we have to keep that in mind as we think about the nature and length of eternal punishment. A third objection, which we didn't address last uh, time, was raised against eternal punishment, is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin in a very short time. Can't that be the case with others? That is true that he paid the price of sin over a short time because he is infinite. He is the infinite God-man. A lesser being takes a much longer time to pay the debt of sin. I say much longer, infinitely longer, because of the finiteness of the man. So there never really is a completion of the punishment for sin. It certainly addresses the duration issue of it. Uh, The nature of it as well, I think you could imagine with me, if you have your sanctified imagination going, the Lord Jesus on the cross, suffering for sin under the most odious wrath of the living God. Uh, Whatever that entailed was far beyond what we can imagine. A fourth objection to eternal punishment, is that there must be another way. There has to be, some will say. And you might have had that thought cross your mind. Isn't there some other way that God can handle the matter of of sin? Well, there is actually one way, and that is in the substitutionary work of Christ. But if that work is rejected, isn't there yet another way, a third way? Well, Um, The Bible does not suggest such a possibility, and it's quite clear in its teaching of the opposite. The nature of a sinful person is that they naturally tend to continue on the path that they are. In fact, the scripture says evil men wax worse and worse, or grow worse and worse. 
these ones never cease from sin, 2 Peter 2.14 says. Heaven is not a place for such people uh, who, who ever continue in their sin. In Revelation chapter 21 and uh, verse number 27, it says, But there shall by no means enter it, that is the New Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no hope for the unsaved who have perished. First Thessalonians 4.13 says there is hope for those who have perished in Christ, but there is no hope for those who have not. So thus we understand the Bible to teach there's no second chance or what is called a post-mortem second chance for somebody. They have lived their life and have made their decision uh, for or against to follow or not to follow the Lord. And so there's no post-mortem second chance. That's probably the most common third way, if you will. You know, uh, eternal punishment is the one way. The death of Christ is the other way. And then the third way that people postulate, those are the only two, but the third way people postulate most commonly is some kind of post-mortem chance for people to purge their sins in purgatory or... Uh, that God will just overlook their sins after a while, or uh, and maybe I maybe I should be careful to say the most common maybe the most common is annihilation, where people and I, I think we mentioned that last time, but or we will yeah we did mention it last time so um, no postmortem uh, postmortem second chances. In fact, Jesus when he died, we understand that he went down to uh, the compartment of the dead during the time that he was separated from his body and uh, proclaimed his victory to those that were there. And that sealed their fate finally and uh, announced that to them. Objection number five is this, that the result of destruction means the end of existence for a person. So some theologians have said, well, when the Bible says that they will experience everlasting destruction, what that means is that they will be annihilated. They will cease to exist, but destruction in the Bible does not indicate cessation. It means ruination, ruin for a person. That's my brief answer to the fifth objection about the end of existence. So that doesn't hold. And then finally, sixth, the objection number six is that God is love, so he would not punish someone unendingly. This objection overstates one attribute of God as over against other attributes of God. For example, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice that arises out of those attributes. And so somebody who says that God's love will uh, overcome punishment or he won't do that because he loves people is just demonstrating a misunderstanding of the true uh, God. All right, so we've, we looked at those, the first two objections. We've now touched on uh, four more. We looked at various views last time of uh, this idea of, is, is it reincarnation? Is it universalism? Is it annihilation? We've addressed all that, so I won't go over that again. But let me go over the basics of eternal punishment. And then ultimately what I'm uh, kind of moving us toward, if we get there this morning, is the section on the rationale 
for eternal punishment. The reason for it. And uh, there are a number of helpful thoughts there as well. So let's uh, go through this kind of uh, introductory material on the basics of eternal punishment, and then we'll come to the, uh, the doctrine or the rationale for the doctrine. First of all, who is subject to God's eternal punishment? Well, it's all those who have rejected God and Christ. Old Testament era believers don't go to eternal punishment because they believed in God. Uh, Abraham believed in God and it was imputed to him or accounted to him for righteousness. So Old Testament believers do not go there. New Testament believers will not go there, of course. Tribulation saints will not go to eternal punishment. Holy angels will not go to eternal punishment. We also believe that babies dying in infancy will not go to eternal punishment. Uh, We also, similarly, at least I believe this, I think most of us in our circle do, that mentally incompetent people will not go there. Profound uh, mental um, disability uh, is uh, akin to uh, an infancy. Um, We hold those last two, the, the infants and the mentally incompetent, with humble respect for the fact that biblical revelation is slim in those cases, although we can find some. Uh, Every other human being, however, every other one, and every fallen angel will go into eternal punishment. Where is eternal punishment? There there are two places that are distinguished from one another in the Bible. The first is called Hades, and the second is called Hell, or the Lake of Fire. The first is seems to be a temporary holding cell for the lost until final judgment. If you read Revelation 20 carefully, it says that death and Hades gave up their dead, and then they were judged according to their works, and then they were cast into the lake of fire, which we more commonly know as as hell. Uh, So we have the temporary holding cell at which time death and Hades give up their dead and will stand before God and be judged. And, And I think that idea that they will stand before God is indicative of resurrection. Uh, John chapter 5, Daniel chapter 12, a number of passages of Scripture indicate that God will raise the dead, both wicked and just, uh, and they will receive their eternal reward. And uh, we believe in 1 Corinthians 15, the same thing is stated, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That doesn't mean just all believers. I think that means all, all. And they will stand, meaning that they are alive and uh, this at this judgment. Uh, any whose names are not found written in the book of life will be, as I said, thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, 10 through 15. It's very clear there. Hades I liken to the county jail. Hell is the state pen. It's the permanent location. They are, however, essentially the same climate. So we've dealt with who, where, how how long? How long? Forever. Revelation 20, verse 10, since I'm there in Revelation, I'll just go there. It says, uh, the devil who deceived them, Revelation 20, 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. If you read Revelation in sequence, you find out they were cast in there in chapter 19 at the beginning of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And so they've been there. 
and the devil will be thrown in there, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the duration stated in Scripture, and maybe I should just say this again, I'll say it later this morning too, but our evidence for this comes from Scripture and Scripture alone. We, we don't have any other way to you know, divine or oracle or conjure up some information you know, out of our own minds to understand what is going on. It takes divine revelation to figure this out because people really haven't gone to the realm of the dead and come back except for the few like Jesus and uh, you know, a couple in the Old Testament and a couple in the New Testament to be able to testify of what is there. Apostle Paul to some extent as well, Second Corinthians. But in any case, there being no scriptures that indicate an exit from the lake of fire, we understand accordingly that all who are placed there stay there forever. Um, and uh, if you need any further evidence of the eternal duration, let me just give you a couple more. And by the way, these notes are, everything I have here is available on the website. I see somebody has that on their phone already this morning. That is there. It is a work in progress. There's going to be more added to the end of it and maybe some interspersed in, in between, but um, it is there for you to look at and follow along. I'm on page number six at the top right now. Um, Matthew uh, 18, verse number eight uh, says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Now, somebody might say, well, that just means the fire's everlasting, but you don't have to stay there for that long. Well, we've addressed that already in, in Revelation. There's also Matthew 25, verse uh, 41 in the sheep and goat judgment section, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 9 says... Verse number 9 of 2 Thessalonians 1. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints. Uh, I'll do one more here. Jude, uh, verse number 13. And Jude says, uh, These are raging waves of the sea, these false teachers foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. We can add to that Revelation 14, 11, 19, 3, 20, verse 10, which we read, and especially Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus called this place one of eternal punishment. Just like heaven is a place of eternal bliss or blessing, so hell is a place of eternal punishment. Uh, another question or nature of this doctrine of eternal punishment. What was the original design of this place? Why did God make this place in the first place, we could say? Well, in Matthew 25, 41, notice again, it says the king uh, will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, notice, prepared 
for the devil and his angels. That was the intention of it. We should be careful, I think, and it's helpful for me at least, and I hope for you as well to note, God didn't design such that people would go to this place. In the first place, hell is designed for the devil and his angels. It's somewhat, don't take this the wrong way, but somewhat of a secondary or collateral damage, secondary effect or collateral damage that unbelievers go there because there's no other place suitable for them in all eternity. But the original design, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, He did not design hell in the first place for sinful people. I take that to mean that they go there as a consequence not so much of God's design, but of their own choosing. I understand God's sovereignty and his decree and all of that, but looking at this from a human perspective, from the creation's perspective, there has to be some holding place for those who desire to rebel against God, and hell is an appropriate place, even though it was intended for the worst of the worst, okay? Uh, if all you have is a supermax prison, then you've got to send everybody who is a criminal there to keep the society safe. Next point. And by the way, I, I'm offering tonight a Q&A session, so if you have any questions on this, you could send those to me uh, or tell me those, and I'll try to uh, address some of that tonight. Any question at all, not just on this subject. In fact, by the end of this uh, session, you probably will think we've beat this to death, so you don't want to have any more Q&A about it, but we'll see. What about the nature of punishment in in hell? This is a very difficult question. Um, You know, is the punishment torture, like electric shocks or waterboarding or the rack or being burned at the stake? Is it something like the boy tormented by a demon in Luke 9? You know, the demon tormented him, and these, these boys, this boy would foam at the mouth and throw himself into the fire. And, or was it like the fear of King Saul in 1 Samuel 31? Let's see that passage. 1 Samuel, I think you know about this passage already. 1 Samuel 31 and verse number 4. Well, actually, there's another portion where Saul has a great fear, and that's when he tries to call up Samuel from the dead. But in 1 Samuel 31, 4, Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. So he's worried about torture or some sort there. Um, Or is it like those who are persecuted in Hebrews 11, verse number 35? Is that punishment in hell like that? Hebrews 11, 35 says, uh, Women received their dead raised to life again, but others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. There were those who were mocked, scourged, chains, imprisoned, stone, sawn in two, slain with the sword. I wonder, because the punishment probably is effective to fit the nature of the crime for those who have 
done this kind of persecution to God's people, what they will experience when they have to live in hell. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Live by sawing people in two. What kind of punishment does that require? Is this punishment like the sting of scorpions in Revelation 9.5? I'm just asking these questions. I'm not saying that, that it is like these things, but this is troubling. Um, or as in the Net Bible translates Revelation 14, is it torture with smoke rising up forever and ever? actually uses the word torture. The Lord doesn't explain in gory detail what it's like, but he uses the word Gehenna to refer to the place of punishment by way of an analogy. Now that location was a physical location near Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. It was also a place where Israel did something extraordinarily abominable, which we find in Jeremiah chapter 7, in verse number 31, it says there, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it enter into my heart. So they offered children in sacrifice to pagan idols in this place. Later, it appears... Well, let's go to uh, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 23. Twenty-three, verse number 10. It appears that Josiah did something with this place to change how it was used. It says in verse 10, And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. So remember, Josiah was a good king, and he, what it says here, what does it say? He defiled it. What does it mean he defiled it? Well, think of, think of somebody defiling the temple in the Old Testament, the, the real temple, offering some unauthorized offering or some pig or something like that on the altar. That's defiling it. That is changing its use from the sanctified to God to the common and vulgar and dirty so that it was not suitable, it had to be cleansed. Well, he did the same thing to their worship site. They held that as holy. They had to do their, their little you know, dastardly child sacrifice there. So he went there and he defiled that temple, that, that place of sacrifice, so that it would not be suitable for them. His defiling that place was honoring to God, unlike defiling the real temple as a dishonor to God, but he defiled that location, and so that they would not cause their son or daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. To pass through means to kill them, to offer them in sacrifice to the Lord. And so the physical location became then used as a garbage dump after he defiled it. And I think that's suitable very interesting because he took the place and he turned it into a place for all refuse, which that sacrifice was religiously, the refuse, the off-scouring of human religion. There, where they had this garbage dump, it is said that the fire never ceased. 
Mark 9.48, the, the Lord Jesus says that as well. It was a horrid place. Obviously, have you been to a dump lately? It's been a long time since I've been to a dump, but we used to have to go there when I was a kid because we lived out far enough from the city. There was no garbage service, so you would uh, recycle your cans and your glass, and you would burn what you could, and then the things that you couldn't, you had to load up in the truck once in a while and take to the dump. And it was a smelly place. Um, No wonder it's kind of outside on the outskirts of, of the towns where it is. Well, it was a horrific place. It was a place where no one would want to go. It was filled with gross things and dangers. And that's what the Lord uses as a likeness for the place called hell. The text of Scripture mentions other characteristics of the place of eternal punishment. First of all, it's a place of outer darkness, which is an absence of light and perhaps an absence of the presence of God or just absence of God entirely. They'll be punished away from the glory of God and His power and His presence. Secondly, it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a common phrase we see a number of times in the Gospels, weeping and gnashing of teeth. These physical expressions probably do, at least to me, certainly indicate a bodily existence in hell. Some people have said, well, there's no body People don't have a body in hell. I don't think that's true. I think they've been resurrected and stood before the judgment of God. More importantly, the weeping and gnashing of teeth are expressions of grief and anger. Um, Think of uh, the uh, Jewish leaders at Jesus, or more probably more so in the book of Acts, against the apostles, uh, or Stephen. They gnash their teeth at these people they hate, an expression of anger. Weeping, obviously, an expression of grief. Uh, The text does not tell us if this is anger against God or anger against oneself, although usually gnashing of teeth is directed at another person other than the one whose teeth are doing the gnashing, whatever gnashing is. Third, hell is a place described where the worm never dies. Now, this to me does not have an obvious meaning. Uh, There may have been um, such creatures in the garbage dump foraging around for uh, stuff to eat, but it could be also the conscience of the unsaved gnawing at them, gnawing at them forever which would imply that they are conscious, and that's clearly true. I won't hold that with dogmatism, but you have to think about that. The worm does not die. Fourth, it is where there is unending fire. Um, And this actually is mentioned earlier in the Scriptures, earlier than you might think. It's in Isaiah chapter 66, the very last verse of Isaiah. It says, and I think speaking of the kingdom... They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There exist those bodies that have transgressed against God in this never-ending burn pile, as it were, outside of Jerusalem. Um, So it seems to be a literal fire, 
there, but not one we're accustomed to if it's eternal darkness or blackness. Um, and that becomes an objection then to the doctrine of eternal punishment that you can't have a, a fire with, uh, with darkness. I'll, I have something else about that in the notes here, I think later on. Um, another characteristic I have in my list, number five, the text adds that it's an abhorrent place, a place that repulses the sensibilities of the onlookers. And hell should do that. I mean, when we experience like, you know, the feelings like it can't be, it's so terrible. That is exactly the feeling that God wants us to have when it comes to the doctrine of eternal punishment. It's so bad, it's so repulsive, you'd do anything to stay away from it. Number six, it's called the second death. A couple times in Revelation it's called that. Number seven, it's the place of fire and brimstone. That's Revelation 21. I think we read that already. Number eight, it is a place of eternal destruction away from the presence and glory of the Lord. We mentioned that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Finally, it's a place that's worse than physical death. Worse than physical death. That's hard to imagine for some people, but if you think about it, um, the Lord did say, you know, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body, and then do what? The worst thing is cast the person into hell. Now, these descriptions are taken by some interpreters more literally and others more figuratively. I take the literal view, but others make a strong case for a figurative or metaphorical view. Uh, one of those is William Crockett in the book Four Views on Hell. Um, Here's one reason for his metaphorical interpretation. There is unending fire, but it's also dark. And this does not correspond to our uh, usual understanding of fire. The literalist might respond this way uh, with an illustration. If you're a NASCAR fan, you may have seen a driver on occasion catch fire. That fire from automotive racing fuel burns invisibly as you may have observed. That kind of fire would also allow for darkness and fire to exist simultaneously. Now, that's just a speculation. That's just a, you know, a possible explanation. Others take the fire to be symbolic of internal torment of the soul, not just external torment of the body. I appreciate that view, and I know that people struggle so with this and want to remain as followers of Christ and not have to deal with the unpleasantness of it, but Luke 16 is hard for me to get around, where the rich man and Lazarus are told, told us, and the rich man is existing there, and he says, give me some water. I'm tormented in what? This flame. It's not just an internal uh, torment, but it's external as well. I can imagine, certainly, to follow the metaphorical for a moment, that there will be at least some residents of that place, a, in them a burning regret and anguish over not responding to God's offer for the gospel. But then again, I have to wonder. Some other people say, no, there'll be just such a negative response to God. There won't be any kind of regret at all. A fellow named Herman Hoyt who taught at Grace Theological Seminary, takes the fire to refer to burning passions that cannot find expression in hell. Now, for him, they cannot find expression because the person does not have a body to express those burning passions, the lusts that they have that they want to fulfill. 
if I were to hold to that view, which I don't hold to it, I don't find it odious or anything, but if I were to hold to it, I would simply say they are embodied. If they do have burning passions, they cannot be fulfilled because God restrains them from doing so. They're in prison. They can't just do anything that they want to do. Um, whether the descriptions are literal or figurative, or some are one and some are the other. Scripture indicates that the punishment for sin does have physical ramifications as well as spiritual and mental uh, or emotional uh, consequences as well. Final question here about kind of the basics on the doctrine of eternal punishment. Are there levels of punishment there? Are there levels of punishment there? It certainly seems so to me. Um, you know, even though we say truly so that, you know, all sin is a violation of God's law. If you've broken one, you've broken the whole of God's law and all of that. Um, it seems that the scriptures do teach levels of punishment on, on this grounds. God will repay each person according to his what? Works. Romans 2.6 says this. Revelation 2.12 says it. The plain meaning seems to include that worse deeds will result in worse punishment. But the next two verses indicate two major outcomes. Those who do not obey the truth will receive wrath, while those who seek God's glory will receive eternal life. So there are two basic categories, eternal life, eternal condemnation. But within the eternal condemnation category, there is a level of punishment based on works. Now, let me mention, on the other hand, in heaven, there is a level of reward based on works. So even though we say salvation is not by works, you're judged by works still for reward in this category, for punishment in this category. You with me? So works are significant. You don't get saved to sit. You're saved to work for God. Ephesians 2.10, God has ordained works for you to do. And the more bad works that an unbeliever does, the worse their punishment will be. And I think this does accord with our, with our conscience. Uh, we know that you know, devilish men like Hitler or Stalin are going to be due more somehow. How it works, I don't know for sure. More punishment, more severe than, than the run-of-the-mill guy that just was a decent citizen and died and rejected Christ. That's worthy of punishment. Um, Jesus says that Tyre and Sidon will have a more tolerable day of judgment than Chorazin and Bethsaida because they rejected the direct presence of Christ. Uh, Luke 12, and there's another one, another passage right nearby there that talks about Sodom and Gomorrah having a better Man, that's tough to swallow, isn't it? Because we just think Sodom and Gomorrah are the worst of the worst. Well, no, actually they're not. Luke 12.47 says that more or less punishment will be given out depending on how much of God's will was known by the person. He who knew the will of his master and didn't do it compared to the one who didn't. More knowledge means more responsibility and a stricter judgment. So bottom line on this question, the level of punishment depends on how much knowledge the person has and how many sins they did. Now, how much knowledge does, 
what's the minimal level of knowledge, excusing mentally incompetent people? Well, the minimum level is at least what Romans 1 says. From the creation, they're able to see the eternal power and the deity of God. That's, that's manifest in them, for God has showed it to them, okay? So that they are without excuse. So there's a basic level of knowledge built into humanity. So that's the basics. Now, let me talk about the rationale, and we're not going to finish this, but I'll start into it this morning just to give you a little flavor of what I've been working on. I've got a couple, I don't know, three or four pages on this, and I'm sure I'm going to have some more because I'm doing some reading each week on this subject. The rationale for eternal punishment. The teaching of eternal punishment in the Bible is very clear. If you say... If you're, if you're a non-Christian, if you're an atheist, if you're a Bible denier, all you have to do is open the Bible and read, and you will see that it teaches eternal punishment. You might not like it, you might not agree with it, you might say it's you know, wrong or whatever, but that's what the Bible teaches. And even liberal theologians have acknowledged that fact, but they reject it. It must be wrong. Some people reject the doctrine of eternal punishment for logical or intellectual reasons, not found in Scripture, but they don't, they don't deny it based on, on Scripture itself. Now, there are some people who take Scripture and they say, well, it's all metaphorical, and they kind of you know, lighten the load of the burden of the teaching by, by you know, gutting it of any, of any edge, if you will. Um, but you might pit one feature found in Scripture, God's love, against another found in Scripture, eternal punishment, and conclude that one must be wrong. What they're basically doing is saying, I like the doctrine of God's love. I don't like the doctrine of God's punishment. So I'm going to choose which is correct and which is incorrect. Who's God in that case? <laughs> the interpreter, because he chooses. He, he makes the decision about what's right and what's wrong. And it's like that, it's like that atheist uh, statement. If God exists, he's got a lot to answer for. To whom? Is he going to answer to you, Mr. Atheist? Really? Um, the one, well, I've already mentioned that. There, there are a number of rational answers in line with Scripture that we can give to the rationalistic denier of divine punishment as I give in the following paragraphs. Uh, these things have to do with ethics, justice, and, and the like. Um, first of all, we're just thinking about this uh, logically, rationally, biblically. The duration and nature of punishment is not determined by the duration of the sin. Okay, so going back to kind of that argument that somebody said, you know, if, if a sinner sins for 75 years, why do they pay a penalty for longer than 75 years? Well, if a malefactor murders a person and it takes two minutes to do that terrible deed, do they go to jail for two minutes? <laughs> We're getting there in our society, but we shouldn't be getting there. Um, sometimes an act that took two minutes is punished by life in prison. So the duration is not dependent on the length of time of the sin. One of the reasons for eternal punishment then is that the nature and results of the sin is factored into the equation of justice. Okay, the nature and results of the sin is factored into the equation of justice. D Genesis 9 
says that if a man sheds someone's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. There's an equivalency of punishment to the crime and the results of the crime that was committed. The duration and nature of punishment is also determined by the person who was sinned against. That person is always God, if not other beings as well. The higher the class of the victim, the worse the punishment. We go back to our example. If the victim is a plant, a pet, or a person, the punishment levels are different. In many societies, if the, per, if the victim is a serf, the punishment is different than if the victim is a prince. Is that right? No, but it is, and people recognize that. Uh, God is infinite. His holiness is infinite. Punishment for sin against him is infinite. He's of a different class altogether. Okay? He's not just like serf to prince. I mean, they're so close compared to God's economy that they're the same. They're humans. Killing of one and killing of another should have the same penalty according to Genesis 9. But just like a, a plant, a pet, and a person are all entirely different kinds of things, God is entirely different than those three things. And so there's clearly a difference in punishment required. Another thought in this line of rational kind of thinking about hell is the desire of at least some unsaved people is to have nothing to do with God forever and ever. Have you ever heard somebody say that? God doesn't exist, but if he does, I don't want anything to do with him. You know, he's the cause of all of our problems and all this religious people cause all the wars in the world and I don't need God to be a good person and and, uh, you know, I believe in science and all of that. Um, because hell is a place separated from the presence of God, it is ideal as a place for those people who don't want to be with God at all. That's, if they're choosing to not be with God for all eternity, that's the place where that is possible. If you had a job that you hated or you had to live with people that you could not stand, you would know what it is like for someone who hates God to be in heaven for eternity. You understand what I'm saying? If you hate your roommate, that would be like a, a sinner in heaven hating his roommate forever. That doesn't make sense. There's got to be another place for that kind of person, and there is. Let me also mention this thought. Eternal punishment, I think I'll have to stop with this one. Eternal punishment is a theologically necessary consequent to the perfect holiness of God. Sin is a violation of God's utter and absolute holiness. There are things that God cannot do. Did you hear that? There are things God cannot do. And one of those is to violate his own holiness and justice. Sin must be punished according to the holiness of God. And since sin is of infinite demerit, he has also ordained it to take infinite duration to match the infiniteness of the offense to thus make it a suitable punishment. Otherwise, it would just be a slap on the wrist in the divine economy. So eternal punishment is a necessary consequent to the perfect holiness of God. And we have a bunch more, which I'll look forward to sharing with you the next time we have opportunity. 
but we have to stop for now. What I'm hoping to do here is to alert us to the basics of the doctrine of eternal punishment and to uh, not sweep it under the rug as others have found convenient to do because it's an unpleasant subject, but also because you may face objections in your own mind or objections from others on this doctrine, and I want you to be equipped and know that there are answers for those objections, that we're, we're not just you know, taking it on blind faith. No, our faith is reasonable. It's carefully exegeting the scriptures. There is true rationale for what we believe. And uh, we're not just kind of crazed hellfire and brimstone uh, preachers and teachers and followers, okay? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to open the word and see a number of things in this doctrine of eternal punishment. And, and Lord, we uh, need to f- do business with this teaching because, first of all, obviously, we don't want to go anywhere near there and nor do we want our loved ones near there, nor anyone else for that matter, even our enemies. Far better for them to turn to Christ and be rescued from the flame than to live on in their life the way they please and have their good things now, but their bad things later. So help us to learn and to grow and to think. And Lord, if anyone here or listening has uh, these difficulties in their heart about eternal punishment, would you please... uh, calm those uh, roiled thoughts with the Word of God and some of the thoughts that we've shared today. In Jesus' name, amen.